Welcome to the Thrive in the Workplace podcast brought to you by The Wellness Theory in partnership with B1G1 Business for Good. This podcast is all about uplifting organisations to thrive when it comes to all things workplace wellbeing. From organisational culture, the most effective wellness campaigns you can imagine and integrating social good. You will find insights, inspiration and information that supports leaders at all levels to implement best practices to improve engagement, performance and vitality within the workforce. We believe that workplaces can and should be healthy and sustainable for both the workforce, the bottom line and the community. And in this podcast, we'll show you how. And just so you know, for every listen this podcast gets, we'll be donating to a life-saving project aligned with the UN 2030 Global Goals. So thank you for being here and continuing the ripple effect. Without further ado, join us to thrive in the workplace and become a force for good in the world. Today, we are joined by Scott Armstrong, who's a founder of Mental, which is an advocacy platform that aims to tackle the stigma of mental health and promote cultures where everyone can thrive. Scott, I'm so happy that you could join us today. And I'd really love to kick off this conversation with you perhaps sharing a bit about your personal journey and what's inspired you to create Mental and what is that all about? Okay, so Mental is a platform, as as you say, where we basically the DNA is to try and tackle the stigma of mental health. Um, basically by having honest conversations and speaking about mental health for too long it's been you know hidden it's been a private pandemic and there's all sorts of statistics that back back us up on that and I'm very happy to get into the statistics you know me as a former journalist Um, the personal story behind mental um, it started about four four and a half years ago uh, when my father who was a very successful CEO very sort of typical 1970s stoic british guy didn't talk about his feelings you know all that kind of thing um very very strong individual um successful had a mental health breakdown and within three months he was dead um and we only recently found out actually on on a on this year's summer holiday that he was being treated for depression before uh before his death and that's something that we didn't know at the time something he kept secret you know uh, and i remember looking down at his body in the cast you know the open casket at his funeral and i'm basically talking to myself you know and i know he's gone but thinking we never talked about this we never you know there were there were a few things that we we cleared up in our lives because we had this relationship that went you know childhood wasn't easy but adult relationship was fantastic but um yeah we'd never talked about this and it was like why what stopped me from talking to him and what stopped him from talking to me um and that also then sort of kind of there was a bit of a perfect storm I changed jobs, which meant I re-examined who I was when I was no longer linked to a job title. Um, His death started getting me to ask questions of myself and where I am, where where I was at with my own mental health. And then the once you kind of see it, you can't unsee it. And I'm looking at my kids, and I'm looking at a very difficult, challenging world that they're growing up in and I'm looking at my dad and I'm thinking well they need more tools than my dad or I had growing up so I guess that's where mental really really um sort of was born really um that day and then since then it's been just a journey to a year ago where where we launched um in my previous job as an editor of a business title which shall remain nameless um I'd really really tried to focus on 
human beings talking about mental health talking about the future of work talking about this you know the human side of the business world which didn't necessarily fit so well with my former employees so the more someone tried to take that off me the more I was actually convinced that this is what I wanted to do as I, I think I'm hitting 50 as well and I promised my daughter I'm going to live to 150 so I basically thought you know with the second third of my life let's try and do something that could actually make a difference and has a bit of meaning so that's kind of where we're at well it's definitely adding meaning for sure I'm, and not clearly just to your own life um, and your kids life but to everybody you're touching through your platform as well and thank you so much for Scott for sharing uh, what you did with, with your dad because you know it's it's very raw and it's something that's very close to the heart and in my mm. experience I think those who have been touched deeply by the effects of mental health are often the ones that are then fueled to act and really make a difference like in this space yeah. I wonder if you're yeah pattern actually with those that buy into what you do at mental do i see a similar pattern oh well quite frequently when i sit down with people and it's amazing um how quickly these days the conversation gets to people's mental health and i think there's two different reasons for that i think one is that perhaps my antenna is more up to it now so it's we we kind of get there quicker in a conversation but two there are more people struggling than ever before um so more at, at and thankfully, more people are beginning to talk about it because they really, really need to. As I say, you know, I call it, call it the private pandemic. You know, my dad's generation never talked about it um, to the point where it will kill them. Um, I think my generation, or possibly the first generation, the you know, and I'm a, I'm not a boomer. My boy keeps calling me a boomer. I'm a, I'm a Gen X, but I think that we're the generation that's finally at 50 beginning to wake up to this and then i think as we go down the spectrum till we look at the gen z's the gen z's are very very aware of what's happening but yeah it's it's surprising and not surprising just how many of us are touched by trauma of some some respects and you can do one of two things with it you can do what society's always told us to do with that which is bury it don't talk about it suffer in silence and then 30 years later it pops its head back up and you have a breakdown or you can begin to talk about it and you can begin to work on it and when i say talk about it the first person that i've realized i need to talk about my mental health to is me first and I learned to kind of check in with myself and go, do you know what? Yeah, there's there's something here and it, and it needs some work because if it doesn't, it's going to dovetail its way and sort of impact work, social life, personal life, home life, parenting. You know, I, I think it's that kind of like we are foundation of every other role that we have, whether that be father, parent, you know, um, brother, sister, husband. Um, so we need to have that conversation with ourselves first. But yeah, um, I am seeing um, a lot of people that are receptive to it. Um, it's it I actually I was I got a bit of a stark, not wake up call, but a really interesting figure that came through the other day, which was so in my previous job for an entire you know for the last year, three hundred sixty five days on LinkedIn, I would often talk about the business story of the day, and I was working for you know I was running a leading. Uh, business title um and then a year ago i started with mental and all i've been talking about for the last year is mental health um and linkedin turned around and said you have reached a million people in the past year and that is 750 percent up 
on the people that were listening to you when you were talking about mainstream general business news. So are people more willing to go to this conversation? Do people need to hear this? I genuinely think they do. And I think the statistics back it up. 100% they do. And you're, you essentially, with the work that you have been doing, is you give per, other people permission to speak about it themselves. For me, one of my uh, biggest bouts of burnout came from, like you described, is essentially burying emotions, trauma, anything from the past. And then that rearing yeah. its head really at the most inappropriate timing in my life when I was in, you know, leadership roles, but there was nobody around me that I could yeah. speak to about it. But what's quite interesting is what you said there, Scott, is like talking about it to yourself first is absolutely essential. The thing for me is that I didn't have the skills to really do that. I didn't understand what was going on within me. Yeah. I didn't have that yeah awareness I don't think I didn't have the maturity I didn't have the emotional literacy to be able to actually describe and articulate what I was experiencing yeah it's really hard to try and reconcile that so the fact that you're openly having these conversations and it's what we do here at wellness theory as well both with our workplace well-being and with our coaching side of the business and it's something that really allows other people to then enter the conversation because they know that there's there's a some form of understanding there there's some compassion there it's almost like okay they know the depths as to what we've experienced too and i think that's the biggest message we keep and and this kind of started right so my journey of mental health started with my dad mental health as a kind of storytelling focus or just the the thing that showed me that other people had the need, which was a really which was really interesting, was Dr. Celia Afridi from the Lighthouse Arabia wrote a column for the for my last title, which was talking all about um how it's not so easy for people to stand up to bully bosses in this in, you know in this part of the world and the mental health tolls of that because you know our, our existence out here is linked to your visa you know so if you lose your job your kids lose their school place you know and that creates a lot of pressure for us to to, to basically soak up and try and endure toxic cultures rather than change it um, and that really spoke to me and really resonated with me because of a you know because of a couple of past job experiences. So I kind of posted on again onto LinkedIn. Not other social media platforms are available, uh, but that is my favorite. Um, and basically, just said, if you're going through this, you are not alone. And I and I, and I talked about. I basically said, look, I remember when when WhatsApp went kicked off. You know, when the WhatsApp message pinged in. Uh, it was a physical reaction. My entire body would tighten. You know, that was what anxiety wasn't just a mental. It was a physical. Um, And it got to the point where on a nighttime when I was trying to go to sleep, I could see the boss in the corner of the room glaring at me. Such was the anxiety. Um, And I posted that and the response on LinkedIn was, was incredible. And it was lots of people coming and going, I thought it was just me. I thought it was just me. I thought it was just me. What's interesting about what you just said was, Charlotte, that you said, like, it, it presented itself at a really inopportune time when I was in a leadership position and there was nobody around me that I could talk to. The irony of that is, is that probably everyone in that room or at least two thirds of the people in that room, you could talk to because they're actually going privately through the same thing. And we've seen the figures like, the World Health Organization tells us that globally one in four people are suffering with their mental health. Here in the UE, the statistics put that at one in three. Um, 
And they're the people that present to the system, to the medical system, who seek help. There was a recent study by McKinsey, uh, which was here in the UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. And 66% of respondents in that survey said they were struggling you know, with their mental health. And this is McKinsey, you know, hard bitten professional services, management institute. So it's not that like they're going looking for an answer. They got honest answers from the world of work. And the world of work told them that two thirds of people, the majority are now struggling with their mental health. So we keep coming back to, you're not alone. You know, there, there, there are people in your immediate circle who know, if not exactly what you're going through, can empathize because they're going through their own struggles. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And what's really interesting is how the the stats do back it up. You know, it's not just personal experience, you know, that and, and people's anecdotal experiences and, and stories of what they've been through, you know. And mm-hmm. it's something that I think does definitely bring us closer together, which is really, really helpful. So I'm curious to know, Scott, because obviously the work you're doing is definitely bringing people together and continuing this conversation and, and elevating it. What kind of initiatives and strategies do you use at Mentor? So if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, wow, that's me. I thought I was alone. I'm not. What kind of things do you do at Mentor? Well, uh, a, a number of things. Um, I think, again, you raised a really interesting um, approach. Uh, what we try to do is give people permission. So I'm not, look, and again, I'm um, I'm a journalist of 33 years. Please forgive me for that. One of the most toxic professions in it. I like to call myself a, a friend of mine, Anne-Marie recently called us uh, ourselves recovering journalists because I'm so tired of what journalism has become. It's some, so polarizing. It is not good uh, for society. So, um, but what we do is try and do that storytelling. I'm not a clinician. Um, I have probably more questions than I have answers. But as a journalist, what I can do is look at the world of work, look at all the research, look at all the studies, and then try and present that in an engaging format that people can connect to. Uh, And I can bring my own story to that to show, yes, you do have permission to talk about this. So what we often do, you know, we are curating events for different companies that want to open up. But the thing we like to do most is sit down with the C-suites and get them to give their people permission, you know, to get them to open up about what they're going through, because that actually makes them a more effective leader, more empathetic leader. You know, this whole idea of chief executive officer is now chief empathy officer. But then that then models the behavior for the rest of the teams, um, which is really, really important because often, even if the CEO is at the top of the organization and says, yes, I want you to go and do wellness, the middle management will often go, yeah, but does he really mean it? Um, and he still wants the P&L. Um, and I, and I, I, sadly, I use the word he deliberately there because if C-suite was largely female, I think we'd be in a much better place because we'd have a lot more emotional intelligence in the boardroom. Um, but that it's trying to tackle that and cascade permission to talk about these things and create those psychologically safe spaces as my friend Andy Fieldhouse talks about and works on. And I'm sure you do the same, you know, try and create that atmosphere where people can actually share, be themselves 
Um, and that is really, really powerful. What we're trying to do right now as well is we've launched what are called our, the Mental Awards 2023. And these are for all industry sectors. And what we're trying to do right now, sorry for the shameless plug, but is try and extract best practice from all the different industries because no one person and no one company has got the right answer. And there are so many different dynamics within the different industries, but we're trying to extract that best practice so we can put it in a room and then go, do you know what? Let's raise the bar on what excellent looks like inside the private sector. And we need to do that because frankly, we spend a third of our lives inside the workplace. You know, was it 40,000, 44,000 hours we're going to spend at our desks or in our places of work? So it has a tremendous impact on our mental health. And yet we all have our own responsibility to our, our mental health, but that does not absolve workplaces from their responsibility. It really doesn't. And it's, it's so interesting that you say that because we always talk about you can't be what you can't see. Right. And for a lot of people, they're, they're not really in environments, even in the family home where they're openly talking about mental health, even physical health. So if we're not yeah. seeing it in our home environments, the next place is work. Right. For most. Yeah. So. I love what you're doing with mentor awards because ultimately you're showcasing and spotlighting role models, right? And role yeah. models don't just show us the path, you know, they light the path for us so that we can learn and we can understand and take it, like you said, like to that next level, which is absolutely brilliant. So can you tell us a bit more about the mental awards? Because that's coming up in October, is it not? In November, November the 8th is the gala dinner. Um, yeah, 38 categories. Um, 34 are sort of industry. So, yeah, I mean, look, if startups, energy, property, construction, healthcare, tourism, travel, logistics, manufacturing, engineering, as a huge, you know, there's the, we're, we're, we're spreading ourselves far, far and wide on this one to, to get as much best practice as we can. Um, we, you know, education, universities, schools, we want to hero what they're doing. Uh, and we also have individual categories for um, people who have overcome barriers to succeed, you know, with with mental health challenges. We've got mental health advocates, we've got mental health heroes, um, empathic leaders, because sometimes these conversations do get a little bit boss bashing. Um, and actually, we want to hero the leaders that are lighting the way um so we're going to hero those um and and yeah the nominations are open now um they close september the 22nd but we'll see if, if people start asking for an extension we'll see about that um and we've just announced today that brandy scott from the business breakfast is also going to be the mc for the event on the night um because we you know we are targeting the business sector we are trying to get that best practice out mm -hmm. i think if we can do that and it'd be surprising where you find best practice i've been surprised where we have found best practice i've seen amazing stories of wellness inside corporations that are heavy engineering you know where people are working in difficult physical conditions um i think one of the really interesting things we've found as well is that you know this this idea that well-being and mental health should be taken off hr through no fault of hrs but then who made it? hr people mental health experts overnight anyway um and given given to health and safety and I've seen when when companies do that, see, health and safety doesn't come with a P&L demand. You know, it doesn't have a KPI to make profit. It's there to protect 
It's there to mitigate. It's there for the well-being of the company, not necessarily to make a profit. Um, and I think also, in general, when health and safety departments speak, most people listen because we recognize that that's for our physical safety. Whereas I think, rightly or wrongly, and there are some brilliant HR teams out there, for sure, but there is often an, um, a belief inside or a perception inside some companies that HRs can be policy police and they're not necessarily on the side of the employee. They are there to ensure that the, the employee abides by policies. So it's been an interesting uh, interesting journey to see where exactly best practice is. So that's what the Mental Awards is all about. It's about raising the bar on what good looks like in industry. Um, and if as companies listening to this and they want to enter, then mentlawards.com, mentalawards.com, shameless plug over. It's not a shameless at all. And I really hope your team are carving out a special award for you. Um, because honestly, like just I'm not hearing of anything like this happening um, in the UK, for example, or in the US um, to this level and to this standard in the way that you're showing up and creating this and doing it in a way that's that's modern, that's that people are engaging with, uh, which is really excellent. But Scott, you mentioned something about uh, profit, right? So yeah. there will be leaders listening to this and they'll be thinking, yeah, this is a nice idea. And maybe they're not quite there yet. Maybe they're on the fence and they know it's important, but they're not really sure where to go, where to start. Give us some give us some um, interesting insights into the ROI on. Almost my almost my favorite topic to the business world. And, and I kind of come at that with my because a lot of my career was business journalism. So a big part of my mission is is the ROI of all of this. Um, and we've. We've developed actually this real-time calculator that kind of ticks up in the background and often we'll sit with the C-suite and just have this running up. So here in the UE alone, and let's remember we're a population of, what, 10, 11 million max. Here in the UE alone, the cost of disengaged employees to uh, business is $10.3 billion a year. It is like $1.125 million an hour. Uh, and we've actually got a formula that we can show, like, how many employees have you got in your company? Well, this potentially is how much you are losing. Um, so there's a huge cost, um, which that is based on figures that were captured by the Gallup's global study. Um, we then look at the cost of replacing talent. There is the cost of losing talent to your business. But then if you turn it on the flip side and we look at the return on investment, you don't have to take it from me. Okay, so my heart is open to mental health. I'm obviously biased on this. However, again, we go back to the research. We look at McKinsey, EY, PwC, Boston Globe Consulting. There isn't a research house out there that hasn't done a piece of research on this, Cigna, Bupa. Um, the common goal anywhere is, or the common finding is that the return on investment is between 300 and 400%. You invest in this space, your return on investment is four, up to 400%. My favorite figure is 364%. And that's because it, that was the figure that came back from a study of studies, which was a study that looked at 100 studies done over the last 10 years and then came up with the average return on investment 
that all of those hundred studies came up. So 364%. And I, I still to this day don't get why chief financial officers are not screaming at this to their C-suites going, yeah, but if we invest this, then we get that. I mean, frankly, is there a cryptocurrency out there that's offering a 364% return on your investment? I mean, we did this speech, we did this uh, masterclass and I think like, Last year, stocks and bonds were down, I don't know, maybe 10%. Um, gold was up 5 or 7% or something like that. But again, like you want to have a look at you want to make some more money, then, uh, then invest in this. And it's, again, don't take it from me. There's a really interesting guy uh, called Mark Mobius, and he's called the godfather of emerging markets. And this is a man that took... Um, $100 million and turned it into $10 billion. Um, He is an investor. uh, And he actually invests on a very cold calculating basis. So he looks at companies and he has what he used to have an ESG index. He now has an ESG plus C index, which is ESG policies plus culture. And he tracks those stocks over 10 years. And the companies that embrace ESG, but also have healthy cultures, do better on the stock market in terms of shareholder returns and profits than those that don't. And he, and let's remember, he is a you know a professional professional investor, you know, who deals with hundreds of millions of dollars, will not invest in a company if he thinks they have a bad culture. And he will use a whole bunch of metrics when he makes that decision, including the glass door scores of a company. And if nothing should not strike terror into the hearts of HR departments, it's your ability to raise investment would be linked to what people say when they leave your company. Wow. So workplace wellbeing is a good deal. It's a sure thing, isn't it? I keep saying it is good business to be a good business. I love that. So, Scott, what's the challenge? Let's say somebody's been listening, they're on the fence, they've just heard those numbers, they've heard like the personal, you know, benefits of it. But what do you think the biggest challenges are as to why perhaps business owners, CEOs, C-suites are not as invested in this as they could be? Well, I look, it, it, it comes very much down to um, personal stigma, to be honest with you as well. I mean, if you think about the C-suites and the C-suites, still currently tend to be people that look like me, you know, of a certain age that were told to bottle up their feelings. And again, what's fascinating is that McKinsey also did another uh, study, which came out about four months ago, maybe, which looked at the top 10 leadership traits and issues that leaders needed to tackle in order to succeed for the decade ahead. Six of those were linked to emotional intelligence. And one of them very, very deliberately spoke to leaders and said that leaders themselves need to go on a self journey. They need to get more vulnerable. They need to get more empathetic. Um, And not everybody, perhaps not everybody can do empathy, but you can be aware of empathy. And even if you are someone that doesn't get it, and and it's fascinating as well with C-suites because not everybody is called to leadership. Some people are more, shall we say, resilient or are they like my dad, who was a CEO, who was just very good at bottling it up until it breaks? Um, 
So they sometimes don't get it here, which is why, again, it's important to bring it back to here and the business case for it. But it is edu- it is education and it is talking about it. And then it's once you've realized that you are going to talk about it, it's making the time to talk about it. Cigna's got a really interesting um, campaign going right now, which I love. And actually, I think it's really, really valuable for all of us, not just in a business setting, but they've got their 5% pledge and they're calling on leaders to devote 5% of their time purely to focus on well-being. Now, they don't tell them what they have to do. They just said, in your Outlook diary, you are going to put 5% of your time to this. Now, in any given leader's diary, you know, and based on a average working week here in UE, that equates to two hours and 24 minutes. And and that's also taking out holidays, two hours, 24 minutes every week that a leader would just go, right, time to switch off everything else. What do we do about mental health and well-being of our teams? What am I going to do? What am I going to do for myself? What am I going to do for my teams? What conversations am I going to have? You build that time in, you know, again, so that's two hours every week. That's your leader devoting up to 100 hours of their time in that year to well-being and mental health of an organization. And that's just the leader. If you then cascade that into your senior leadership team and there's 10, say that's 10 people, you know, then you've 10X that amount of time. That's a really, you know, that's a huge amount of time that we could do something really, really huge with, which can make a massive difference to the culture of the company. And, and to be fair, I think we also are getting a little bit, I mean, when we talk about well washing, um where companies just tick a box but how many companies have you been in where we have a pool table in a room that nobody dare play on Uh, and i think it's fascinating that companies have got to stop looking for the quick fix and actually be very self-reflective and look at and be honest with themselves do you know that old adage of the first step is admitting that you've got a problem you know, as you just said, if you can't see it, you can't fix it. Um, so it's spending the time to be self-reflective because even they can put all the mindfulness training in the world or they can put people on time management courses. And all of these things actually make things worse because essentially what we what that says to the employee is it's your fault because you can't cope with the pressure as opposed to looking at the culture and going, have we created something that's toxic and is not good for people? And it doesn't matter how much time management training or mindfulness we give them, they're not going to be able to cope. And there's there's evidence out of the Oxford University very recently, they've got a well-being research center that said that projects like that, if you're not tackling the underlying culture, they're actually counterproductive and make things worse. Because again, you're putting everything on the employee and you're telling him it's their fault, not a shared responsibility. Oh, yeah, Scott, like you're, you're preaching to the choir with the conversation with me. So I hope everybody's listening to this. Rewind and listen to that clip again, because it's so, so important. It's funny because the one of the reasons we got into workplace well-being was similar to what you mentioned around like the self journey is we actually was coaching more one on one. And we was working more and more leaders that were coming to us extremely burned out. And when yeah. they started to get the results that they needed to be able to sustain themselves in such a healthy way and lead from such a strong place, they were yeah. then asking us to come in and now it's like now do this with my team please and 
for a long time we did a lot of like stress management stuff some burnout prevention and almost like workshops and we got to the point where we're like we're, we're being part of the problem because it's not being looked at from a big picture perspective which is one of the reasons why we decided as a company to properly do workplace well-being rather than to kind of go in and help out the the leaders that had already kind of enlisted us um yeah. don't get me wrong the people in those workshops seeds were planted and some of them got great results but the reality is long term for the business, it wasn't going to give them the success they were looking for, which is one of the reasons now why we integrate the organizational culture, wellness campaigns, which we do um, in a similar way, which I really enjoyed. Actually, I attended the um, 5% pledge webinar that you actually did mm. with the guys over at Signa, and it was excellent. Yeah. And I actually then modeled um, the, the, the setup and the way you did it with kind of like almost like a panel uh, yeah. discussion. Um, and then we would clip that with leaders within companies. We will clip that up and we will then distribute that. So they're spending their two hours of their, that, that week, their 5% pledge by actually um, creating content, essentially, that they can then filter down. So they don't yeah. have to be talking about their own well-being and, you know, championing success of their own employees all day, every day, because actually now all of that content can be repurposed. It can be really landing with people in different ways when it's done creatively and it's had a massive impact and the third thing that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the investor was the um, ESG and we also integrate the social good into the workplace as well where we can and where the leader is on board with that and it's absolute game changer it's been an absolute game changer for the kind of results that our corporate clients are, are, are getting and it's been really really powerful so I really love like the the way you just described that because it is absolutely necessary for it to to land in a way that makes sense for the company. And I think you do that really well. Well, if we look at, you know, right now, our minds are a little bit focused here on the UE on ESG, um, because, and quite rightly, E um, will be the big focus, um, shall we say, of COP28 as it, when it comes to Dubai Expo City. But the S is just as important. And if we think about sustainability, now, if you are in the C-suite and if you're a C-suite listening to this, you have a responsibility to the sustainability of your company. You have a responsibility to for it being around in 10 years time. If your culture stays the same as it was for the past decade or the decade before, you are not doing your job correctly because you're not going to attract the talent. You're not going to attract the next wave of talent. You're going to have a culture of fear where people don't raise when things go wrong. And you're going to, which we've seen impact businesses over and over again. You're going to have a culture of silence where people will be afraid to try and innovate. And I always, you know, I talk about Kodak saying no to the digital camera or Nokia saying no to the smartphone. And we saw what happened to those companies. So again, there are pure economic business reasons why companies need to take this seriously because you know you cannot run a company like you ran it 20 years ago and if you think you can you know you're living on borrowed time I, I call them zombie companies you know they are literally shuffling off to their own demise and the talent and again we see this from the statistics you don't have to take it from me but Cigna do their well-being research uh, the 360 well-being research study every year and they showed that 50 percent of people last year wanted to leave their jobs oh actually this, if you get two years ago they asked people do you want to leave your jobs for a better work-life balance or a better culture and 50 percent said yes now if you're a hard-bitten c-sweet guy who uh, doesn't get this you roll your eyes and go well it's just a survey what does it mean 
except they went back and spoke to the same people the year after, which was which was last year. Out of that 50%, four out of five had all moved. And let's not forget, we live in the UEE. There's a massive amount of opportunity right now. They've done a great job in creating mobility for talent. And when they asked them last year, how many of you this year are thinking about moving on, that figure had gone up to 55%. It's funny because, again, if we put the... Yeah, we we keep laying the blame at at leaders' doors, and there is a fair share of responsibility there. But talent doesn't like this, but leaders don't like this either. And again, this whole idea of when you're talking to leaders about burnout, again, Booper have their executive survey every year, and they found that 55% of bosses wanted to move on. They 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 got their own term for it, which is the boss loss where C-suite talent is also heading out of the door. So at what point, this is almost a little bit, I, I always feel like the mental health conversation right now is kind of where climate change was five or maybe 10 years ago. At what point does the overwhelming amount of evidence click in and we have, you know, the COP28 for well-being? You know, when do we begin to realize that this isn't just something that's anecdotal? It physically manifesting itself in companies and it is not good for companies you can go one way you can spend money you can burn money and burn people or you can make money and make people yeah. mic drop right there for anybody <laughs> that invested i just came up with that i quite like it <laughs> i love it i really do so scott one of the other really key important areas for you and um, that you focus on at mental is men's mental health now, yeah. I think there's many vulnerable groups within the workplace, um, but men Absolutely. are a very, very important um, group for you. So you can tell us a bit more about that. I've gone on a journey with this one as well, because um, it's fascinating. And actually, I will say that um, a lot of my education actually almost started with women and menopause. And there's a great lady called Sharon James who started, you know, we started talking about the male menopause. Um, so, you know, and it's interesting to, to see that men's journey with the menopause is not as dramatic um, as perhaps women's are in terms of what happens biologically, but it really, really happens. Um, and the difference one of the key differences I see is is the toxic masculinity that we've all been raised with makes it really, really difficult for guys to open up and even have that conversation with themselves because we are taught that we should not fail. We do not want to fail the people around us. Uh, and I keep, I, I cite the example of, say someone in my position, um, you know, a guy who's in their mid forties, if you think about the responsibilities that that individual's got, so they will possibly be a manager. So they've got a responsibility to their team. They've got a responsibility to the PL. They've got a responsibility to the board and possibly a toxic leader above them. They're then a husband, a father. They've got school fees. They've got increasing rent year on year. As we all know, the cost of living is going up. Um, and that there is a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress. And where in that equation is the guy? You know, what is that? Because if that individual fails, then all of those roles and responsibilities also fail. They are they are the foundation of everything else that's built. Um, and when we look at the statistics, it's just terrifying. Last year, 700,000 
700,000 people committed suicide. 77% of them were men. Um, it's now one of the leading suicide is now one of the leading killers of men it's one of the leading killers of kids between 15 to 25 doesn't matter what geography you look at whether it's the uk and that was a big one for me as well even in the early days when i kind of came across these statistics was you know my one of my boys is 22 um and he went through university when i came across this this you know statistic it's like oh my goodness in the uk it's the biggest killer of young men between 18 and 25 suicide it's also you know, a huge killer of men aged between 40 and 50, which is just when we're going through that sort of you, whether you, you know, it's clumsily called the midlife crisis, but we are going through physical changes. Our body is slowing down. Um, the, uh, the moves come, the brunch belly comes. We look in the mirror and we don't quite like what we see. We've got less energy that we want before. We've risen up the ranks in toxic companies. So we can't talk about what's happening. And we're told that if we do, we're weak and we're failing, which is utter BS. Um, so we have a lot of guys who end up trapped. They're re- they are trapped in their own lives uh, and can't talk about it. And we did a men's retreat. Um, where we just took men out of the, you know, their situations and we did lots of great stuff. So we did physical stuff with them, which was fire and ice saunas and ice baths. And we did yoga on paddle boards and it was brilliant. And shout out to Simon Dunn, formerly of the lighthouse retreat over in uh, Ras Al Khaimah. Um, but the biggest thing we did, which was the most impactful thing, was, it was basically just a talking circle. It was a, it's called a cacao ceremony. So we have this really, really strong dark chocolate with it as well. But we kind of talked about, okay, what are the things we're grateful for? But also what are the things that are going on with us? And it was amazing that all these guys who were vice presidents and they were, you know, they were leaders in their fields were going, I've lost myself. I don't know where I am anymore. Um, and the most i think the most powerful thing they took away from that was again okay so it's not just me it's not me that's the failure because it's not them that's the failure you know i i i've had imposter syndrome all my life i have considered my considered myself a failure for a lot of my life despite the evidence i've done some pretty cool stuff with my jobs i've i've had some pretty cool achievements but my focus and my self language um, which I think is rooted in the toxic masculinity again, is awful. Men's self-language is terrible. You know, we call ourselves losers. We call ourselves things that um, we wouldn't say to our worst enemy. Um, and it's only like the last two or three years that my self-language um, and my perspective has really begun to change on that, where I've be, I begun to trust myself. I've be, get, begun to value my own opinion of me as opposed to somebody else's opinion of me. Um, there's a great lady called Ray Cabasi who runs this, so Raise Your Health. And she interviewed me for a podcast back in my previous life. And she asked me a question which really, really threw me. And it was, it was a really, really powerful question for almost, I think, for anyone to ask themselves, which is, okay, Scott, so you're, you know, you're an editor-in-chief, you're a husband, you're a father. Um, that's all very, you know, that's all very well. But outside of that, you know, at 3 a.m. in the morning, who's Scott? Mm-hmm. I was like, do you know what? I'm not sure I know. I used to, but I think I used to know, but I'm not sure I know. Um, and that was really, really powerful. And I think that that's another thing that guys in particular, but not exclusively struggle with, is that our identity, sorry, phone ringing, our identity is so linked to our job role. 
you know, it's, it was so linked to where we don't realize that our job is not who we are. It's what we do. Um, and the minute that that job, I, I, I was fortunate, I changed careers only very, very slightly. And this was again in the last sort of three or four years in that, in that journey. Um, and the job was great, but when I could no longer identify with the title that I'd given myself for most of my life, I was all over the shop. I didn't know which way I was up. I didn't know who I was, what I was doing. Felt really, really like a massive confidence knot, you know, and I'd been, uh, the the job previously, I'd been at the top of the career, been an editor-in-chief, all that sort of thing. And then I left that industry to go into strategic communications at Hill & Knowlton. Great culture, great company, no problems there. But internally, everything was crashing down because, again, my self-identity had been ripped up. Now, ultimately, that was a really positive thing that happened to me. And I'm so grateful that I did it because I think that then gave me like even now with this business, like, okay, so I've changed from what I've done once I can change again. And all of a sudden you have this flexibility. It's almost like remote working, you know, you can work from anywhere and you can do almost anything. It, it breaks the shackles of what you think you can do. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of guys out there that are just trapped in their own lives. And when I look at the suicide statistics and when I look at the statistics on men's mental health, you know, we're four times more likely to complete an inactive suicide than men. We are three times more likely to commit suicide than women. And um, yeah, the pandemic, which was awful for everybody, um, there's big um, statistics showing just how much men struggled because again, all that fear of failure and we've just been taught not we cannot fail and we cannot talk about it because it makes us weak yeah and those statistics are heart-wrenching they really are and it's you know i i have experienced suicidal ideation along my journey and it's a really hard thing to really come back from uh that's even the right term for it i'd really love scott for you to share like what's been the most important things on your journey so you've definitely like painted a really nice picture of like where you were and I assume like you're still on this journey from the way you've spoken about it, but what have been the key things that have been helping you the most? So if some a man is listening to this and they can really identify with the story that you've just shared, like what yeah. have been the key factors that have helped you the most over the last couple of years? Um, look at the evidence. You're not a loser. Um, be kind to yourself. Um, when you're having that conversation, be kind to yourself, give yourself a break. Um, and the more I look back on, you know, you, I mean, that gives you then permission to back yourself, but it's just, I've done lots of things in my life and I still feel like somebody else did them. You know, those good things that I did, like and like, like every guy, like every human being, I've made mistakes and I have been occasionally an idiot, but I've also occasionally, or actually more frequently, been brilliant. <laughs> and I've been, a yeah, but it's trying to change that, you know, we talk about glass half full, glass, glass half empty, but it's trying to change that self-perception of us from the fact that, you know, that actually 70% or 80% of what I've done in my life has actually been positive. You know, I, I am a good dad. I, I adore my kid. Um, I've done great things in my career. I, gen, gen, when I look back at it, I go, do you know what? That was actually really, really cool. And it's beginning to realize that actually you don't need to push all of that away. We seen, we know, we humility is brilliant but humility when it comes to the point where you're almost self-flagellating is not 
great. And I think guys, there's enough people in the world and social media will tell you, you know, and again, we've got all this comparison going on. So we look at the world and it's like, well, my life's not as good as theirs, particularly here in the UEE where, you know, everything is brilliant and everything is sparkly and it is fantastic. And we've both been to the UK and none of us want to move back there right now. But um, it's that, okay, just focus on what you've got, focus on what you've done. Um, and over the last sort of two to three years, and particularly with mental, um, it's been a journey for me, I think in particular, just going, do you know what? You're not, you can do this, you know, and there is a British self-effacing thing that will always be, you know, or the imposter syndrome will always bat off the compliments. But at times, you know, doesn't, you don't need to be a narcissist to actually believe some of the comp to believe in yourself. You know, um, we, we've all got a, a shade of ego and we, we try and push it away, but, it's just beginning to believe in yourself and back yourself and just be kind to yourself. There's a great guy. And I know you probably know Mark, Mark Colburn, MBE, who is a Paralympic cyclist. You know, he won gold. He broke his own record uh, in the Paralympic games in London to win gold medal for his country. Um, and he worked with a guy called Dr. Steve Peters, who uh, wrote the chimp paradox. And it's basically, they talk about the fact that the insiders, we, there is a duality. There are two parts of us. And one is the emotional side and one is the logical side, the human side. Um, and the emotional side, the chimp, uh, Mark calls his Dave, you know, wants what it wants when it wants it. And it doesn't necessarily make the best decisions for us. Uh, and he said, and this Dr. Steve Peters taught him that he had to talk to his chimp. And recognize you almost, you know, so I, well, I don't know whether it's dissociative or something like a you know, psychiatrist would tell you better what it, what it all means, but it's basically going, you're okay. It's talking to yourself and going, are you physically safe? Yes. Are you emotionally safe? Yeah, yeah, you are. Is the anxiety that you're feeling right now justified? But, and when I talk, you know, when it, for me, it's looking back on the evidence of my life and going, right, is my self-opinion justified? I'm now, you know, I'm coming at it with a really negative view of myself. Is that justified? Uh, and that's a great period because you can look at that. You can reflect on the things that you've done wrong. And we all should reflect on the things that we've done wrong and look at how we can fix them and get better at them. That, that's all cool. But at the same time, you know, take comfort and solace in the majority of your life, which is you actually have done some really, really good stuff and you have reached some people and you have been amazing, you know, and I think that's that's part of it is just trying to deal with that insecurity, deal with that, which you know, nine times out of 10, I don't know. In my case, a lot of it I know comes from my childhood and comes from childhood experiences, um, which set the tone for a very inconfident individual whom then masked for most of his life with you know with boisterous behavior and with trying to seem to the outside world that he got everything you know uh down and use of alcohol to tackle inhibitions you know but it has been a mask and i think talking to myself and beginning to realize what does the mask look like and then how do you how do you kind of i don't think anybody can take the mask off all at once but how do you begin to peel it off and get to to you really and then once you get there it's like yeah in my in my case it has been i don't need the pat on the back who doesn't want the pat on the back but i don't need the pat on the back on the pat on the back and the validation 
near, not nearly anywhere near as much as I did literally up until maybe four or five years ago. It took the death of my dad to snap me out of that. So. Well, there's so many insights there, Scott, that anyone <laughs> will be able to relate to, but also be able to learn from, you know, self-kindness is absolutely paramount for anybody. Um, when it comes to their mental health, because we're so, you know, biased on seeing those negative things. And if we are operating from more of a survival state, we become a lot more narrow minded. And then that becomes the yeah. thing to focus on. Right. And then that amplifies. So when you're having those conversations with yourself, that really, really gives gives the power back to where are you focusing? Because you see where that conversation's unfolding. And if you've got enough self-awareness, we can almost like step out of it and see the ego at play. You can see young Scott when you know he's a kid going through those experiences that maybe you know um planted some seeds of insecurity and things like that you can start to see and build those relationships and start to befriend those parts of ourselves and I think you know it's, it's something so natural and it's very much part of the human experience it's not easy though uh, and for anyone you know uh, it, it isn't an easy process to go so like like it wasn't an easy process to change careers and have that self-identity ripped up but, you know, we, we sometimes need to go through those difficult times to learn. You know, um, I don't think I know anybody um, who just has a meteoric career. And I, I, I okay, so I actually did have, have a period of time and I could look at it's maybe even 20 years, maybe a 15 year run where it was promotion after promotion, you know. You, you rise up the ranks you you win some awards you do some great stuff and it's bang 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 everything's going in the right way and that's great right up until the point where nobody can keep rising you know eventually you're going to hit a ceiling of some sport even if you are a top athlete you hit a ceiling you know if you've ever listened to johnny wilkinson who won the the world cup for england he has this really amazing you know a podcast on different different topics but he talked about what happened to him when he achieved his life goals you know when you reach the top and there's where else do you go then and when you reach the top and you you get there the only place to go is is internal then and that's when you begin to talk to yourself because otherwise you distract yourself with that race you distract yourself with that climb and it's actually yeah i may be rambling a little bit now but i think it is just really really important to realize that you know, you are going to have to deal with this at some point yeah. or you're going to be my dad and you're going to be my dad and you're going to, he came from poverty. He built his own business. You know, he was a strong guy, worked all his life, built a global business. And then when it came, when he had his mental health challenges, he had no defense, no tools. It just broke and it broke through his armor and he was dead within three months. So... Scott, thank you so much for everything you've shared in this conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to speak about that perhaps we should have, or perhaps that you feel you just would like to to mention as we wrap up this episode? Oh, well, enter the mental awards, of course. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's just, we're at a real inflection point. So I think it is, if I circle back to just that one message, which is you are not alone and talk. I think they're just the two fundamental things that I want people to do and be brave enough to talk to yourself and be brave enough to seek solace from a friend. And you, sometimes you don't even need to talk about it. You just need to ask that again, another great friend. I think we both know him, Sam, Sam Browning. He talks openly about his uh, struggles with mental health, you know, um, and he's an amazing guy. Uh, and he just talks about going for a walk, you know, just being there, 
you know, just getting out a little bit of physical exercise, which also kickstarts the system. But yeah, just talk, know that you're not alone and know that actually, you know, you are in the majority, you know, this stigma has to end because we keep telling everybody that it's just them when it's not. Scott, big, 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 big thank you for your insights and your wisdom today. Everybody that listens to this podcast, as they hopefully know by now, um, for every listen this podcast gets, there will be a donation made towards one of the 2030 global goals. And Scott, Scott today has chosen global goal number three, which is good health and well-being. And I feel like you've already made a good case as to why that is so important to you. But is there any other reason why you've uh, chosen that goal? Um. I guess this is the journalist in me looking at society in general. I generally think that, you know, we're living in a more polarized society than ever before. You know, we've, we've, you know, we've got social media putting us in one camp or another camp. Uh, and I think the more secure and I think the more secure we are, we are as parents, the more secure we are as leaders that enables us to raise the next generation of more secure children, colleagues, apprentices and that ripples forward and if our children are more secure then they are more uh they have a bigger shield against polarization if they feel that they have the confidence to make up their own minds and decide what's right for them rather than follow the herd mentality which is being dictated by the polarizing forces in the world my profession the media and journalism i just think we'll be better off um as a society and then that will free us up to make the better decisions on the other goals that you include you know one two and four you know about the planet you know if if we can get to the point where society is a psychologically safe space where we can all have conversations and all have views and all then work towards solutions i think we're going to be in a better place and we'll also mitigate you know the threats that everybody thinks that you know ai is going to come and kill us off because they're going to look at society and go well it's time for them to go um i yeah a, a bit grandiose but yeah really i just think our kids or our future they need better tools but if we can raise them to be secure raise them to be mentally healthy then i think because a lot of what's going on right now politics whether you look at the us you look at the uk all that sort of thing it's basically down it's a lot of insecurity it's a lot of anxiety it's a lot of fear we have fear peddled to us all the time because that's what social media and that's what the media thinks, sells, clicks, engages. It's anger, it's rage, it's fear. Um, and we need to come up with an antidote to that. And I think mental wellness and mental health can be the antidote. Yeah, 100%. Definitely. And so our mission here at The Wellness Theory is to help people realize when they're healthy and well, they can be a force for good in the world. And everything about what you just said, just like, just irons it out beautifully. So Scott, thank you so, so much once again. So, so grateful for you to come on the show today. We will make... Thank you for listening. (laughs) Always. We'll make sure all of the links um, to everything is in the show notes. So anybody can come and find you easily. Um, But thank you so, so much. Brilliant. Thank you, Charlotte. 
Today's episode was hosted by myself, Charlotte Stebbing-Mills, the co-founder of The Wellness Theory. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and share with someone who may benefit and be part of our mission to help people realise when they're healthy and well, they can be a force for good in the world. I just wanted to share some more about our partner, B1G1. B1G1 is a global movement that enables businesses to incorporate effective impact creation into their everyday activities in a simple and powerful way. Through B1G1, businesses can choose from a wide range of verified projects around the world and integrate these impacts into their business operations. The core concept of B1G1 is that every business transaction or interaction can be directly linked to making a positive impact in our world. Whether it's providing access to clean water, supporting education, planting trees or addressing social issues, B1G1 enables businesses of all types to make a real difference. To find out more about them, visit their website at b1g1.com. Until next time, be well, mean well, and make a difference that lasts. See you in the next episode.